Happy Easter. I caught you off guard. Happy Easter. Before we jump into the, the teaching this morning, I just want to say this. Uh, that song that we just sang is one of my favorite songs. Um, and over the last year, there have been times I've been in this room and I've sang it because I believe it. And there have been times I have sang it because I really want to believe it. So maybe you're here and you sang this song because obviously God is good and he's better. And maybe here you sang the song this morning because you really want to believe that God is better. And maybe here you had a hard time getting the words out because you just don't believe God is better. Maybe you needed to hear somebody else sing it so that their faith could remind you that he's better. Wherever you're at, there is space for that here. You don't have to pretend like anything else is true. Whatever you're bringing into the room this morning is welcome here. I want you to know that. Easter is the day we celebrate the resurrection, but much like Christmas, it tends to be our most plastic holiday where we all fake a smile and pretend like everything's fine. But if the way of Jesus tells us one thing, it tells us that we don't have to pretend. Amen? All right, well, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, obviously, because it's Easter. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments, right? Um, if, you're, if you've been here for a while, you know that we are concluding our stone series. We have spent ten weeks in the Ten Commandments. This is the last Sunday. We finally did it. We made it. If you've been wondering why we accidentally scheduled this for Easter Sunday, it wasn't an accident. Um, if you are thinking, I missed the rest of the series, I don't think this is going to make sense. I promise this will make sense. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to what you've missed, but this is going to stand alone. And this, we are celebrating Easter through the lens of the 10th commandment this morning. So Exodus chapter 20. If you've got a Bible, turn there. We're going to read one verse. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, or his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Happy Easter. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, again, as we do nearly every week, we come to you in your name, saying your name is the only name that matters. That God, whatever is from me, it's just my opinion, let it be revealed so it can be forgotten. God, if I speak anything that's untrue, let me be revealed as false. Let your name and your word be the only thing remembered and celebrated this morning, and let us leave in a little while with the name of Jesus on our minds and in our hearts, because that's the name that matters. We love you. Amen. How many of you have heard the phrase, curiosity killed the cat? Pretty much everybody, all right, don't worry, we're not talking about cats. Um, every time I talk about cats, it doesn't go over very well, because apparently we've got a lot of cat people here, um, and I do not share that opinion. Um, but we're talking about the phrase, not the animal. Um, this time last year, we took my son Josiah to an Easter egg hunt, as you do about this time. Now, my son is, you know, 50% my DNA. He gets a lot of stuff from me, some of it good, some of it not very good, like a just unflappable uh, competitive drive. Like, my son gets this from me. He's the type of kid who, like, if he doesn't think he can win, he probably doesn't want to play, you know? 
Um, like I said, not everything that he gets is good. He definitely gets that from me. Um, he's also fairly dramatic, which he gets from Jen. <laughs> Everybody always laughs at that because if you've spent 30 seconds with us, you know that's not true. Um, we went to this Easter egg hunt, and Josie was having a great time. He was having a blast, um, because the first few minutes we were there, and while he was searching for eggs, all he knew was he was supposed to find a lot of eggs, and that's what he was doing. He was finding a lot of eggs. Some of the eggs had candy in them, so he's like grabbing eggs and shaking them, trying to find what's in them. He's helping other kids find eggs. They're all celebrating the eggs they found together. They are having a great time. I mean, he is like laughing and cutting up and having so much fun, best day ever. And then they get done with the round, and he realizes that not only was he supposed to find a lot of eggs, that he needed to find the most eggs. And what was excitement turned into like frantic anxiety as he started counting eggs and like looking at other kids to see who had the most eggs. You know, he's like listening in on other people who are also counting their eggs, and all of a sudden he realized he did have a lot of eggs, but he did not have the most eggs, and the day started to take a turn. Um, and then he realized that not only were you supposed to get the most eggs, but that there was a prize for the person who got the most eggs, and that he did not get that prize. And that while there was candy in some of the eggs, in the basket that was the prize, there was a lot of candy. And I'm telling you, it was like flipping off a switch, and I was like, that's my boy. That's me right there. I mean, it was like flipping a switch. He went from, like, best day ever to worst day ever so fast it would give you whiplash. Like, all the parents know how to deal with a very public meltdown, super fun. That's what the Saturday before Easter turned into. Um, and here's what's interesting. The thing that sent him from best day ever to worst day ever, the thing that ruined his day was realizing there was something he should want. He was having a great day before he realized there was something else he should be wanting. When all he knew was what was in front of him, he was perfectly content. Now, only kids do that, right? Adults never do that. Yeah, we've never had a vacation ruined by scrolling Instagram and seeing someone else's vacation, right? You've never been perfectly happy with your house or car or boyfriend or whatever until you saw someone else's, right? Yeah, kids are the only ones that do that. Adults never do that. The phrase, curiosity killed the cat, is actually only half of the traditional phrase. The whole phrase is, curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back to life. Humans have this innate drive to want to know things. We have this innate curiosity. There's something in us that wants to know what's on the table, that wants to know what we stand to win and what we stand to lose, that wants to know what we're working for. It's natural in us to try to figure things out and to cross the next ridge and to go towards the horizon. Anthropologists would say this is one of the things that has caused humans to thrive. It's one of the things that's caused humans to spread to every continent. It's one of the things that took us from walking to riding to driving to flying. We have this innate drive and this ambition. This is the thing that when you're on a hike, it causes you to wonder if the views are better from the next ridge. It's the thing that causes you when you're on TikTok to scroll for another 30 minutes because the funny video might be right below this one, right? Um, it's this innate drive to see what's next, what else is out there. Now, this drive is a good thing. Sometimes we would call it ambition. It causes us to invent and to explore, to work hard, to improve ourselves. It's a good thing. But human beings are complicated, especially on the inside. 
And ambition has this kissing cousin called coveting. And coveting was what happens when my ambitions start to work my neighbor's job or start to live in my neighbor's house. When my ambitions start to look less like what might fulfill me and look more like what I think is supposed to fulfill me or what seems fulfilling to other people. Coveting is what happens maybe when my peace or my contentment gets wrapped up in my ambitions. When I begin to imagine that the only way I'll be fulfilled or at peace in this life is if those ambitions are fulfilled, then that good thing of drive and ambition crosses that blurry line into coveting. And this isn't a modern problem. It's a human problem. And it's into this human world that we live in that God gives this commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, spouse, work, things. You shall not covet. And, and this command really sits at the base. You can see it as a summary of all of the other commands. Theft, murder, breaking the Sabbath, idolatry. All of these things have their root in looking at my own life and saying, this doesn't really seem like it. Something else, something else must be there. Now, in the ancient world, coveting had really obvious repercussions. It was impossible to hide the negative impacts of coveting because it was a world in which the strong literally survived and the weak oftentimes didn't. In the ancient world, it was a world where in many cases, if you had wealth, if you had power, if your nation had more power, you could, without really any repercussion, take from those who didn't have it. So coveting obviously led to murder. Coveting obviously led to theft. Coveting obviously led to workaholism. It, it led to all these things in a really obvious and direct way. And if you look throughout the story of Scripture, you can see over and over and over again how coveting leads to destruction. In fact, you can go back to the very beginning and see in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent says to Adam and Eve, no, you could be like God. And the first temptation is to covet someone else's position. And then you could look throughout the story of the people of Israel and you could see how they wander around in the wilderness and they start coveting other people's land and other people's military and other people's practices and it leads to violence and it leads to starvation. It leads to all kinds of things. You can go forward in the story. And you can see the people of Israel coveting a king. In the ancient world, the king was the representative of the people. You would look at your king and you would say, if my king is strong, then I am strong. If my king is rich, then we are rich. The king led the military. The king controlled the nation. And the people of Israel, up until a certain point, didn't have a king. They only had God. But they began to look at the nations around them and say, those nations are obviously powerful. Those nations are obviously rich. We want a king like theirs. They began to covet a king. And God said, you're not going to like it, but I'll give you a king. And not long later in the story, the king that God gave them starts coveting someone else's wife. And it leads to an affair. And then it leads to a baby. And then it leads to murder. It was pretty obvious in the ancient world the way coveting played out. Because those with power had the ability to take from those who didn't whatever they coveted. In our world the repercussions of coveting are more subtle. We don't live in a world where obvious, obviously the strong take from the weak. It still happens, but it's more veiled in our world. 
We don't live in a world where many of us have the opportunity to do that. So coveting takes this more subtle, more internal, but just as insidious space in our life where coveting leads to things like comparison, leads to things like deep discontent. It leads to cognitive dissonance. It leads to looking at someone else's life and saying, why are things going so well for them? What do they have that I don't have? Why did God bless them and not me? Why, why, why does God seem to prefer them or favor that person? What am I doing wrong? What sin is in my life that I, why don't I have that blessing? Why did, maybe I didn't work as hard. Maybe I didn't. It leads to looking in the mirror and not being content with who you see because who you see doesn't look like or doesn't sound like or doesn't act like who you think you're supposed to see. And coveting corrupts from the inside and creates a culture of deep discontent in which we continually want the next thing and strive for the next thing and get and earn and try to accomplish the next thing because happiness lies just over the next hill or just around the next year or just in the next office or just at the next pay increment. Happiness, peace, contentment lies just over there. So we covet and our ambition destroys our peace. Not because ambition is bad, but because we've been convinced that that desire being fulfilled is the only thing to fulfill us. So God gives us the secret. This commandment is the secret. This commandment is the secret to living the life that you were created for. Right here. Do you want to live a life in which you have peace and contentment and joy and hope? The secret is to not covet. Do you want to follow the rest of the Ten Commandments? Do you want to live a life where theft and violence is not a temptation, where you can rest in peace on the Sabbath, where you're carrying the name of the Lord your God with integrity and honor, not with vanity? Do you want to live all of those things? Then the secret is not coveting. If you want to live a life of integrity, as followers of Jesus, we have to do the hard work of rooting covetousness out of our heart. We've got to get it out because until we learn to look at where we're at and see contentment and peace, we will never find contentment and peace because it doesn't doesn't live anywhere else. It lives where we already are. Contentment is not something to accomplish later. It's something to experience now. That's why God outlaws coveting in his kingdom. This is the secret. The life that you're looking for, the life that you're longing for is caught up in the simple act of not coveting. Can I be honest with you? I already said this, but honesty is kind of weird on Easter because it's a pretty plastic holiday in general. We're pretty accustomed to pretending to smile and hearing very uplifting sermons that just make us feel better while we go to like hunt eggs and eat ham later. This is the only commandment that seems completely impossible to me. This is the only commandment that I look at and I do not know how to follow this. I mean, you could tell me to root coveting out of my heart all day, and I don't know how to do it. I, I could, I think, if, if I was really disciplined, I could probably, at least by the letter of the law, follow the rest of the commandments. I could probably not murder anybody, probably not steal, probably not lie. Not that I've done all of that perfectly thus far, but I think if I were just really disciplined, I could probably live up to the ethic of the rest of the commandments. 
And I'm not trying to flex. I mean, I think you could too. I think we all could. But this is the one that I just, I don't understand. I don't understand how it is possible to live a life without coveting in this world as it is. Because here's the thing. I know my life. I am intimately familiar with every expectation that has let me down. I am intimately familiar with every loss that still haunts me. I am intimately familiar with every disappointment, with every time my career did not turn out the way I thought it would, with every friendship that is fractured. I am deeply aware of every mistake that I have made. I know those things really, really well. And I don't know your life very well. So I I have not yet really figured out how to look at your life and not imagine that if I had what you had, I would be happier. I I haven't figured it out. Because we're all familiar with our own lives. And we live in a world where, yes, social media makes it harder, but being human is what makes it difficult. Is we see other people all the time, and we live by comparison and in community. And the only option to not live in community is to live a cold and aloof and disconnected life. And maybe you don't live in comparison, but that's got its own problems. So we all live this life where where we know every dream that is lying dead in the corner while we are living our current consolation prize of life. We are intimately familiar with those things. And some of us are really good at pretending like it's not true. And I know there are some people who are like, every time I feel discontent, I just look at someone who has it worse than me and I'm happy. And sure, you might do that, but I think you're lying. Um, And I don't know how it happens because life is hard. Listen, like we celebrate Easter and we put on bright colors as a little bit of an escape in a world that is difficult. And if you live long enough, you will experience that difficulty. And coveting is our natural escape plan to just imagine that if I had been born in different circumstances, if I had made different mistakes when I was younger, if... if if I had your life, if I made that much money, if me and my family got along that well, if I had gotten married at that age, well, of course I would be happy. Of course, if my dreams had come true like yours had, then I would be happy. This is the default setting of humanity. At least it is for me. And if it's not for you, then just pretend it is so I feel better. But this is why we are talking about the 10th commandment on Easter. Because it is in to this painful, broken, consolation prize life that Jesus came. As Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unfamiliar with our struggles. He was born poor into a blended family. He was rejected by the people that he loved. He was misunderstood by his family. He lived working hard with his hands. He was not respected for his contributions to the world in his time. He was betrayed by the people that he loved. He is familiar with the pain of life. Jesus knows intimately and personally, not as an idea, but as a lived experience, what it is like to feel physically and emotionally 
emotionally and spiritually the devastation and disconnection of this life. He knows what a broken relationship is like. He knows what a dead dream is like. He knows what family trauma and difficulty is like. He knows what physical pain and suffering is like. He understands those things. And listen, it is into this life, this life that you and I live and that we know so intimately well, it is into this world that Jesus said these words. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Listen, there is nothing in the Christian faith that promises you life is going to get easy. It does not exist in the Bible. It is not there. If someone is selling you an easier life through Jesus, they are selling you a false gospel. The the Bible promises the opposite. It says we will have persecutions. We will have troubles. Suffering is a certainty of the human experience in this life as it is. But rather than escaping from that, Jesus came into that. He came into that. It's into this world. We have a high priest who can understand and empathize with our struggles. I cannot promise you that it will get easier, but I can promise you that Jesus has overcome the world so we can take heart. That is an action. Take heart. We can choose courage and confidence, but why? How did he overcome? How did he overcome the world? By drinking to the dregs, the darkness and sin and pain and suffering that this world could muster to the point of death and then resurrecting. And then resurrecting. How did he overcome? Not by might, not by wealth, not by enforcing his will on anyone, but by taking it all upon himself so that he shows us there is a hope eternal. He is the firstborn among the dead. He is the first of the resurrection that all who believe offer. So why, how can we as followers of Jesus not covet? It's because in this life we will have trouble, but this life is not our home, friends. This life is not our only life. This life continues. This life starts in Christ and echoes into eternity where we will see every sorrow eclipsed by the goodness of a good resurrection and a King Jesus who reigns over everything for eternity. This is the hope of followers of Jesus. We don't live as escapists trying to get away from the pain of this life. We live embroiled in, embracing all that this life has to offer because we know that every darkness dealt to us will be eclipsed with the light of good King Jesus for eternity. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's how we live without coveting. How can I look at someone else's life and be thankful for their blessings without imagining my life would be better if it were their life? I can live that way knowing that my life will be made right in eternity. I have scars, but they will be healed and made new. And the scars will tell the story of Jesus just like his do. Why do we as followers of Jesus feed the hungry, even though Jesus himself said that the poor will always be with you? Because when we do, we open a window to an eternity where everything is made right. Why do we stand up in justice for the victims who are taken advantage of all over the world? Because when we do, we open a window. We set an appetizer on the table for an eternity where everything is made right. 
Why do we seek to live in righteousness and in repentance? Why do we seek sanctification and to follow in the way of Jesus and embody the ethic of the kingdom? Because when we do, we open a window, a foretaste of what resurrection will be like. Theologians call it the already not yet kingdom of God, where we live in this already reality where we can see and show what God is actually like, not perfectly, but with a glimpse and a glimmer so that we can know what we're in for. That's why. This is our hope. This is our hope as followers of Jesus. It's not that this life, everything will be right. No, it's that in this life we will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. When I was younger, I didn't really like Easter, um, partially because I don't really like pastel colors, um, but... uh, (laughs) Sorry, no offense. Uh, um, But mostly because the resurrection just seemed kind of extra to me. I don't know a better way to describe it than that. Um, I didn't understand the value of the resurrection. I mean, I knew Jesus had to resurrect to defeat death, but, but I didn't feel acquainted with the need for that. I was very familiar with my own sins, with my own shortcomings. I knew very well all the things I had done wrong, so the idea of Good Friday, of Jesus on the cross on my behalf, was deeply compelling to me. It was beautiful. And I loved Good Friday, but re- the Easter Sunday just seemed kind of like a letdown. It just seemed kind of like, I don't know, the exclamation point on the end of an already written sentence. But that was before I had lived long enough to see things that needed to be resurrected. And now, after two miscarriages and career that I love, but that did not go how I thought it was going to, and relationships that are fractured and will probably never be the same, and countless things that cause me to think we have tasted our fair share, not as much as some, but we have our fair share of the pain of the world around us. I have come to a place where the resurrection of Jesus contains the hope that I deeply long for. Because I know when grief comes back to haunt me that it is okay to grieve because it will be made right. I know that I will see the resurrection of the dreams that have died and be reunited with the people I have lost. I know that there is a life where everything will be made right, where our physical bodies do not care the pain and suffering, where, where our emotional, where our spirits and our beings do not carry the wounds of trauma. I know that there is a reality in which that is not the case, and it is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the hope for those of us who follow Jesus, is that in this life we can choose joy and we can choose to not covet because there is coming a certain reality where everything already is made right and we will experience it. Because of Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. This is our hope. Maybe today uh, you like me, or a follower of Jesus who finds yourself oftentimes just uh, being bogged down with the pain of life to whatever degree you experience it and you find it hard to hope. And today, you just need the invitation to say, I have a hard time believing that he's better, but I'm choosing, I'm choosing to say, 
Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, not to pretend like everything's fine, but I'm just choosing to believe in the resurrection, whether it feels true or not. Maybe you're here today and you are like I was 10 years ago, and you haven't lived long enough to be familiar with that pain, and you just need to hold on to this, because in this world you will have trouble. I wish I could tell you something else, but I can't. But I can also tell you that he has overcome the world. If you cling to that hope, you need not fear. Maybe today you're here and uh, you have been choosing not to follow Jesus because he seemed disconnected from your reality. It didn't seem like he understood. It seemed like he was offering you some fake, plastic, pretend like everything's fine reality. And today, maybe you're starting to see that Jesus is familiar with your pain. That he knows intimately what it's like. And that we can cast our cares on him because he knows and cares. Maybe today you're here and you are not sure if you believe in any of this. And that's okay. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you're not sure if you believe in the resurrection or if you believe in a God or if you believe in any of this, but today there's just this, this window, this, this glimmer of maybe it's true. And I just want to invite you to crack open that window. You know, Jesus is the only belief system that says taste and see that the Lord is good instead of believe now and you'll figure it out later. Jesus invites us to taste and see. And Jesus says, test me in this. We can, we can trust that he's not just withholding things until we get enough faith. He will accept us with whatever faith we have right now. And if, if the only faith you have right now is something like, if Jesus really is God, then I think I could believe in that. Then give that to him. He can work. If you're today just saying, you know what? I would really like for that to be true. I'm going to roll the dice. He can work with that. There's no magic words. There's no special prayers. It's the most ridiculous deal that has ever been offered because we receive the benefit, we receive the goodness of Jesus by believing, by, by trusting. Because when we believe that he actually did die as our representative in our place, and he actually did rise again as the firstborn of creation, initiating our hope into eternity, and we believe that he is king, inviting us into the right way to live and will ultimately make everything white. If we believe that that is true, then we live in his salvation. It's crazy. That's what faith is. It's believing that it's all actually true. If today you're deciding to believe that for the first time, you can just tell him. There's no magic words. But I just want to encourage you with one thing before we worship and we celebrate. Right now is the best moment you'll ever have because it's this moment to choose to follow Jesus. I believe he is faithful. And if you roll the dice, he will prove himself faithful. Remember, I said faithful doesn't mean easy. I didn't say life was just going to get better. But I genuinely believe that you will see the goodness of God. Today. Tell him today. However, whatever words use yours, 
I choose to believe. I know that you forgive me. Let's pray. Jesus, we... God, I ask that we would be people who are honest enough to not pretend like we don't have anything to covet about. I ask that we would be people who are honest about the pain and suffering of life, not pretending like everything's fine. I ask that you would meet us in our honesty as we know that you will. God, I thank you that your resurrection tells us that you know what death is like. That your resurrection tells us that you know what loss is like. I thank you that you are not unfamiliar, disconnected from our pain, but that, but that the pain we experience, you experience too, and have experienced. I thank you that we have a high priest who knows and understands and has been there so we can trust you. And Jesus, for those of us in this room who have a hard time believing it, whether we've been believing in you for a long time, but today it's hard to believe, or whether today we're trying to believe in you for the first time, I ask that you, your Holy Spirit, would instill faith into our hearts, that you would crack that window just a little bit more so that we can see the goodness of your love, the goodness of your hope, the goodness of your glory, the goodness of your, your forgiveness, and that we can celebrate your resurrection as our promised resurrection as our promised hope of eternity that is sure and solid. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Before we worship, if you're here today and you have in any way decided to follow Jesus, we don't like tweet out salvations or anything like that. We're not trying to do that. We do believe that the way of Jesus is a way walked together and you have people. There's a card on the seats we're not trying to sell you anything. We're not gonna like sell your email address to a used car dealer or something. We just wanna be able to reach out with, to you and say, hey, you're not alone. We'll walk through this with you. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, if you're wrestling with something that you don't know how to deal with today and you want counsel, you want help, um, if you have been following Jesus, but you are interested in deeper discipleship, would you just put your name and email address or phone number on that card and check whatever box makes sense. And if none of them make sense, just write it in. <laughs> we'll reach out to you. You have people, whether you know it or not. And we want to prove it to you. We want to walk this together. Let's stand and worship our resurrected King together.